don't even know how to process that. Mike, that was like one clap. I don't know if that was for you or for me. So <laughs> That one's for you. Thank you. I remember being at this conference called One Day, and they had uh, Kirk Cameron was up there speaking. And a lot of people knew him from the 80s sitcom Growing Pains as Mike Seaver. And so when he walked out on stage, I mean, there was maybe 100,000 people out there. Big jumbotron, he walks out, and everyone's screaming, yeah, Mike Seaver. And he said, don't clap for me. Don't clap for me. There are people here going to hell. Don't clap for me. And I looked around and said, well, it's going to be one. One kind of sermon, eh? <laughs> so don't clap for me. No, I'm kidding. I'm just going to <laughs> I leaned over and told my man, I said, hey, that dude must have been hanging out with Paul Walsh. Because he showed up. <laughs> it was like, it preached Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And all them people that was like, yeah, it was all like having to use the bathroom uh, <laughs> inconspicuously. So. So whether we a clap or not, God, God, God is God, right? And his word goes forth. So thank everybody for their worship, their service this morning, and all that you do. Thank you for being here this morning. It is a nice, hot day. You know it's hot. When it's hot at 8 a.m., it's hot. That's when you know it's, it's coming back. So anybody know when the, one of those, uh, when are they leaving, man? When are those cicadas leaving? Every time I walk out of my house, it's like it feels like an episode of Alfred Hitchcock or something. Like I'm just waiting these things are everywhere. I Many fly by you like, hey, how are you doing? One of them just flew in my car, landed. They can't see, but it looked like it was looking at me like, where are we, where are we going? So, and I just plucked it and said, you're not going nowhere with me. So it is hot in here, but hell is hotter, they said. Yeah, let me bring that. But we're not talking about that today. Some of y'all took a deep breath of sigh of relief. We are still in our series in Romans. We're in Romans chapter 9. Last week, we talked a little bit about, well, I mentioned that I wanted to talk some about Ishmael and Isaac. I want to talk about some of the distinctions between Ishmael. Thank you, bro. I want to talk about some of the distinctions between Ishmael and Isaac because we were looking at God's promise to a people that's different. It's a different people. Like Ishmael is also Abraham's son, but Ishmael is not a part of the promise. And so we talked about God's promise is often comes with a supernatural element to it. So Abraham and Sarah couldn't have children. So to be able to have a, a child was a supernatural act. Jesus was born supernaturally. So, so God's promises is sort of consistent on its way down to Jesus. But I wanted to talk about the, some of the distinctions between Ishmael and Isaac. Many of us would know this, not necessarily from the Bible, but just in terms of world religions, that Ishmael is traced to Islam. So Islam, this is why they call themselves one of the Abrahamic faiths. The Abrahamic faiths are people who are connected directly to Abraham. So you have Isaac, 
and Ishmael. And you have Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. An Islamic scholar says this about Ishmael. This is one of the Islamic scholars. This is what he says about Ishmael. He says the substance of references to Ishmael are clearly a good deal less in number than the biblical Ishmael narratives have to offer. There are eight verses in the Quran and approximately 37 in the Bible. And yet Ishmael enjoys considerably more worth to Islam as a revered prophet and patriarch than he does in the Bible. With the Bible offering a more subdued profile for Abraham's firstborn son. So even though he's only featured in eight verses in the Quran, they recognize him as more significant than we do in our Bible. Islam believes that it was Ishmael, not Isaac, whom Abraham was going to sacrifice. The Quran teaches. Islam believes Jesus is important, but he's not the Messiah. The irony is that in the Quran, they call Jesus the word of God. And they talk about Jesus eight times more than they do Muhammad. And they don't say one bad thing about Jesus, except that Muhammad is the last prophet. Now think about this in in actual biblical terms where Ishmael is older. He's the older one. So technically, in terms of world religions, Islam should have been established first. But Islam isn't established until around 600 A.D. This is hundreds of years after Jesus has already wreaked a havoc on the world. It's this idea that the younger Isaac will be greater than the older Islam. Now that's in history. But in the Bible, it's almost the exact same thing. Let me give you a couple of distinctions first between Ishmael and Isaac, and then we'll jump into our passage. One distinction is Ishmael is named by the angel of the Lord after he's been conceived. You see this in Genesis 6, 16, verses 11 through 13. It says this, the angel of the Lord said to her, You have conceived and will have a son. You will name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. Right, so here it is. So Ishmael is named after he's conceived. Isaac is named before he's conceived. Genesis 17, beginning in verse 18. So Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael were acceptable to you. But God said, no, your wife, Sarah, will bear you a son and you will name him Isaac. I will confirm my covenant with him 
as a permanent covenant for his future offspring. Now make the connection. Let me make it for you. Isaac is named before conception. Supernaturally, he's born. Fast forward to Luke 1, and Jesus is named before conception. And then is born supernaturally. Gabriel tells Mary, you will have a son. You will name him Jesus. And then he's born supernaturally. You see, God's promise and the way he's going to conduct that promise is going to play out identically until it gets to Jesus. Another distinction is that Ishmael is said to be the, a nation versus Isaac, nations. So you look at verse 20 in Genesis 17, God talking to Abraham. He says, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will certainly bless him. I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He will father 12 tribal leaders and I will make him into a great nation. Those 12 tribal leaders, you can see in Genesis 25, 12 through 16, those are all his sons. He has 12 sons. Just like Jacob has 12 sons that become 12 tribes. God's faithful. But he says, I will make him into a great nation. To Ishmael. To Isaac. This is what God says. Then Abram fell face down and God spoke with him. This is Genesis 17, beginning in verse 4. As for me, here is my covenant with you. You will become the father of many nations. Your name will no longer be Abram. You will be Abraham, for I will make you the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful and make nations and kings come from you. I will confirm my covenant that is between me and you and your future offspring and throughout their generations. It is a permanent covenant to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. And to you and your offspring, I will give this land, all the land of Canaan as permanent possession. I will be their God. You see, the distinction is God says he'll make Ishmael a great nation, but from Abraham, many nations are going to come. He says 12 tribal leaders to Ishmael, but kings are going to come as a result of you through Isaac. Another distinction between Ishmael and Isaac is that the promise is actually to Abraham and to Sarah. It's about Abraham and Sarah. It's actually not about Isaac. Listen to the language that God says. Genesis 17, he says this. God said to Abraham, as for your wife Sarah, I do not call her Sarah, for Sarah will be her name. I will bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her. She will produce nations. Kings of people will come from her. Why is he saying that? Because he said to Abraham, nations and kings will come from you. Well, who are they going to come through? Sarah. So the promise is actually about Abraham and Sarah, not Isaac. But with Ishmael, the promise 
is about Ishmael, not Hagar. In Genesis 16, God says this in verse 11, you will, you have conceived and will have a son. You will name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. This man will be like a wild donkey. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. He will settle near all his relatives. God never says, I'm going to bless you, Hagar. Nations are going to come from you. Kings are going to come from you. He doesn't bless Hagar. The promise is about Ishmael because he is the son of Abraham and God has a covenant with Abraham. But when it comes to Isaac, the promise is about Abraham and Sarah of which Isaac is the first installment of that. You see, initially, God focuses on Ishmael and what he will be more than Isaac. If you look at the language, God told Hagar he will be a wild donkey of a man. He'll be this. He'll rise up against every nation. He does this. But God doesn't use that language about Isaac. God says to Abraham, I will bless you. You will be kings and nations will come from you and from Sarah. And Isaac will be an installment of that. God focuses all this stuff about what Ishmael's going to be, but not what Isaac is going to be, because Ishmael and that promise, it ends with him. What God says to Hagar ends with Ishmael. God is not promising to bless Hagar, to give her anything else apart from this particular son. Whatever other sons that she has, to know of him. This son, so let me tell you who he's going to be. But the scriptures don't talk about who Isaac is going to be. God doesn't spend time talking about what Isaac is going to be. Because the blessing given to Abraham and Sarah doesn't end with Isaac. It ends with Jesus. You see, for Hagar, the blessing ends with Ishmael. This is who he's going to be. I promise you he'll be a crazy dude. He'll be a wild dude. People will know him. I got you. I've heard you. I'll bless him. He tells Abraham the same thing. I get you. I've heard you about Ishmael. I know he's your son. You love him. I got you. I'm going to make him into a mighty nation and all that. He'll be prosperous. Got you. But it's Isaac where the promise is going to come from. Amen. God's blessing of Ishmael is important for many reasons, which will be some of the main talking points going forward in the verses to come. But I want to just list a couple of them. God's blessing of Ishmael is important for many reasons. One, because it shows that God blesses people and allows them, even if they're not in the ultimate promise of God, he's still going to allow people to experience blessing, family, relationships, community, love, prosperity, all these things. 
Even though they're not ultimately in the plan of God, God says, I still have a plan for them. These aren't people that deserve anything from God, but God says, I'm going to bless them anyway. So there's a ton of people that are not in the plan of God, but are going to experience the grace of God. God's blessing of Ishmael shows that grace, it's a privilege. It's not an obligation. God isn't obligated to give anyone grace, so when he does, it's a privilege. The only people who are obligated to receive grace on one level are those who believe in Christ. He's not obligated to treat everyone a certain way. You know how there's there's this rhetoric like we're all God's children. Well, not really, though. Not biblically speaking. We're all made in the image of God. But being God's children comes with a relationship. Just like we could all say, you know, every, every, you know, before COVID, like BC, right before COVID, that's the new BC. (laughs) You know, we'd have the kids come up and do like a little Christmas Joint day, sing a song, and they'd be like, oh, these are, we call like solid rock kids, those are our children. And we love it. We sit up front, laugh, take pictures, we love it. Right? They're our children. In a manner of speaking. But technically, none of those kids on that stage are mine. My kids are two, they're sitting beside me watching. So in one level, these are all solid rocks kids because they're from people who come from this church. But when we get to the specifics, these are the kids. These are my children. If, if, if we're at a public event and, and something happens and everyone's running around and there's all this disarray and then I'm looking for my kids, I'm not going to be looking for anybody else's children but my own. And when they, when they have my kids, I'm like, those, those are my sons. Those are mine. I might see your kids like, hey, I know them. That's my friend's kids. But these are my sons. You see, God created everyone in his image, but there's only certain people that he says, these are my children. These are my sons and daughters. They are them. Jesus in the New Testament called it my sheep, know my voice. Those are the people that belong to me. But he blesses a lot of people. Grace is a privilege. It's not an obligation. Many more distinctions could be made between Ishmael and Isaac. I just want you to have that in the backdrop because that's going to become an important idea as we move forward in the rest of this chapter. But today we're going to look at four verses, pretty much three, because verse nine kind of covers what we talked about last week. But let's read nine through 13 and let's try to explain what this means. Beginning in verse nine of Romans nine, I quote, for this is the statement of the promise. As this time I will come, at this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only that, but Rebecca conceived children through one man, our father Isaac. For though her sons had not been born yet or done anything good or bad, so that the purpose, so that God's purpose according to election might stand, not from works, but from the one who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. The word of the Lord is spoken. 
Verse 9, we spent a great deal talking about, even though we didn't hit verse 9, with the idea of verse 9 we've talked about. It's just communicating what we discussed last week about Isaac and the promise. For this is the statement, this verse 9, the promise. At this time, Sarah will have a son. So he's reminding the church in Rome of the reality that we looked at in large detail last week, that Sarah, the promise, that God promised to have that Sarah would supernaturally have a son. So he's just laying that foundation down. Now, I'm going to say this. You know this to be true. Many of you are Christians, and you know this to be true. Promises in Scripture are always about God's faithfulness, not about what the actual promise is. It's always about God's faithfulness. When we read, like, those boring eulogies of all these names of people and such and such came from such and such, and you look at these boring genealogies in, like, Matthew 3 and, like, Luke 1, and you'd be like, man, I'm just skipping past all these names. Who would name their kids Methuselah, you know? <laughs> you know, all that stuff. You skip past all that stuff are promises of God's faithfulness. It's this person had this person that had this person that had this person that had this person, and here's Christ. I promise you that Christ was coming. Here's the evidence. All of those people's names that we can't pronounce have stories that are part of God's redemptive plan to present Jesus eventually. Promises in Scripture are always about God's faithfulness. But this promise is moving in a direction. Because he promises Abraham that he will have a son by Sarah, and then that happens. It's almost, you know what it's like? It's almost like watching a reality TV show. And certain episodes just focus on one character and their story. If you ever watch like American Idol, there's certain people that get like this backstory, right? They zoom in and talk about, so you get to understand who they are. You find out why they're singing. It's usually emotional. Someone that meant was important to them passed away. And then you sit there, you're like, man, I hope you can sing. Because you don't want to see them get voted off after you watch this emotional story. So you're like, man, I hope you can sing. And sometimes they can, but sometimes they can't. And I just think, man, that was cruel to show that story, get us all emotionally tied up to be like, nah, it's a no for me, dog. (laughs) We're watching God's reality TV show, zooming in on this particular family, this particular situation, so that we can focus on this to understand what God's doing here. In verse 10, he says this. The narrative moves on. The promise moves on. It, gets, it keeps going forward. He says, and not only that, but Rebekah conceived children through one man, our father Isaac. Now, he's making an assumption that you know who Rebekah is. But if you don't know who Rebekah is, you're like, why does that matter? He's, he's referring to Genesis 25. He's referring to Genesis 25, 19 through 23. Let's read it real quick just so we have context. He says this, these are the family records of Isaac, son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took as his wife, Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Paddan Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. 
the Lord was receptive to his prayer and his wife, Rebecca, conceived. But the children inside her struggled with each other. And she said, why is this happening to me? She went to inquire of the Lord and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will come from you and be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. So here we have a similar situation to Abraham and Sarah. Well, their son Isaac marries a woman named Rebecca. Rebecca cannot have kids. Isaac prays for her and God gives her twins. And he says, two different nations are in your womb. And he emphasizes that one will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. Now, you have to know that in, in the Bible's day and age, like when the Bible was written and the, Judy, the, the, the Judaism custom, the older son, the firstborn, was the big deal. And it wasn't just Judaism. It was the custom of the day. This is why the last plague of God towards Egypt was what? I'm taking the firstborn. Because that's a big deal. That's typically where your heir is. That's where everything that the father have goes to that one. He looks to the firstborn as the one that will carry on the tradition. Kind of like in, our, in your families, if you were the firstborn and you're especially a couple years older, you were the one that were more responsible when things happened in the house. If the house was tore up, they call you. What happened? Like, oh, they, they, nah, I put you in charge. But in this context, he's saying, no, no, no. The firstborn that normally is the one that's in charge is actually going to serve the younger one. Now, look at the language here towards the end of this verse. And not only that, but Rebecca conceived children through one man, our father Isaac. Notice the language, our father. We know about our father Abraham, but now it's calling Isaac our father. Our father Isaac. Paul, on behalf of God, is giving the paternal, the father nature, the paternal connection is given to Isaac because he followed in the same faith as his father, Abraham. And the promise that God made to Abraham is extending. It's moving through. The familial connection is staying put. And to prove that, God calls Isaac our father as well. He says, our father, Isaac. But most of the time, it's our father, Abraham. But he's giving Isaac the same paternal you know, connection because Isaac follows in the faithful footsteps of his father, Abraham. Isaac has faith in God. He prays to God. God answers and gives him two sons. And of those two sons, one of them connects to the promise 
that God made. So even in the same actual family, God is still saying, this one, not this one. This one. This is who this episode is going to be about. Not this one. But the point here is not about people and their faith. It's that God is choosing some and not others. And it gets seemingly more complicated. Verse 11. For though her sons had not been born yet or done anything, good or bad. So he's referring to the, the conversation that God had that when Rebecca inquired of the Lord and was like, man, what's, you know, this don't feel right. And he said, oh, there's conflict in there. There are two nations in there. Setting in motion the conflict between these nations later on. There's conflict. He's, he's referring to that conversation that God had in Genesis 25. He says, for though her sons had not been born yet or done anything, good or bad, so that God's purpose according to election might stand, not from works, but from the one who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. There's a lot in this verse. There are three phrases that are the most important in these two verses, 11 and 12. The first is, or done anything good or bad. The second is so that God's purpose according to election might stand. And the third references again the first point, not from works. Let's look at each of these specifically. Verse 11, for though her sons had not been born yet or done anything good or bad. Now, you may be aware of this. Let me, let me, let me explain to you sort of a theological confrontation between two sets of people who believe in salvation. Many of you have heard of like Calvin's, Calvinists and Arminians. And some people say the distinction is free will versus predestination. And they would say Calvinists believe that God elects people, chooses people to be saved. And people think, well, if, they, if God chooses people, then that's not of their own free will. So you have another group of Arminians who say, no, we believe that man chooses God, but they have a certain way. See, they believe in the doctrine of election too, but they think about it differently. They call it prevenient grace. And what that means is, God looks into the future, knows that you're going to accept him, and then gives you grace to do so. So it's based on God's foreknowledge of your choice. Where Calvinists would say, no, God chooses based on his own decision. Because man can't choose God apart from God. So that's one of the major conflicts 
within the church. Now, I personally, personally do not call myself a Calvinist because Calvin didn't write the Bible. He just explained parts of it at a very crucial point in redemptive history. I'm a Paulinist, if anything. I agree with what Paul said. I don't know. Calvin, I don't, I don't know him. I agree with Paul. So here's a dilemma. How can it be free will? This is the question. How can it be free will if God chooses? How can it be free will? So prevenient grace says, well, God looks forward into the future, knows you're going to choose him, and then gives you the grace. So that says you're elected because of God's foreknowledge of your choice. And the other side, Calvinism, which I tend to agree with, is that God chooses of his own doing. Let me tell you why I can't, not only does the scripture not say that God looks into the future and chooses based on foreknowledge. We can prove that right here, but let's just, we'll come back to that in a second. One reason why for me, just logically, just logically speaking, why I can't accept that God looks into the future, sees that people will choose him, and then chooses them or gives them grace to to accept the call of salvation. Here's, Here's one problem for me, just logically speaking. You don't have to agree with this. This isn't scripture. This is just logically speaking a challenge for me. I am a firm believer that man cannot do anything apart from God's assistance. We can't breathe. We can't even breathe unless God allows us to. We don't have the ability to cognitively think unless God allows us to. Don't don't get me wrong. God does these things in such, such graceful, casual ways that we think like, oh, we just, I thought of this, this was a great idea. And it's true, I'm not saying that we're robots and then we don't, but we can't, listen, we can't even breathe. There are people now that had, have challenges with their breathing or thinking or bodily functions that they didn't have at one point in their life. We're not, listen, you think that's air you're breathing? That's grace you're breathing. That's grace. Because if God decides that you have a problem breathing, then you're not going to be able to breathe that air so easily. God, no one can do anything unless God allows them to. So the ability to choose God on your own still is connected to God giving you the ability to think cognitively, to make a choice. So even if you do make a choice of your own, you don't make it apart from God's allowing you to make that choice. So you can't just choose on your own unless you are fundamentally independent of God. And the moment you're independent of God, you cease to exist. It doesn't work. The ability to do that comes from God. So it's hard for me to, even if you say, well, this is my own choice. Cool. Who allowed that choice to happen? Who gave you the ability to think about God in such a way that you would choose him? 
That's just logically for me. That's not, that's not even the Bible. So you don't have to agree with me. You don't have to agree with me at all. That's on you. That's logically. I just, I just have a problem with that. Free will is still an act of dependence on God. Yes, it was my decision to do this with my arm. But if the Lord says, I'm not letting Kurt do this with his arm, then it stops. Biblically speaking, free will is more about free to do the will of God than it is free to do your own will. Let me, let me, let me read something to you. John 8, Jesus. This is, I, listen, read, whenever you get a chance, read John. Whenever you just don't feel like, whenever you don't know what to do, read John 8, 9, and 10. And just enjoy Jesus' interaction back and forth with the Pharisees. That's just a fun couple passages. Just enjoy that. Get you a little popcorn and be like, all right, let me watch Jesus just talk to these people. <laughs> this is that tell them how you really feel, right? John 8, beginning in verse 34, here's what Jesus says. He's going back and forth with them saying, they're saying Abraham is our father. And Jesus says this, truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. A slave does not remain in the household forever. But a son does remain forever. So if the son sets you free, you, you, you really will be free. So if the son sets you free, then you're really free. Apart from that, you're not free. So the son has to set you free to really be free to do what? To worship God. So biblically speaking, free will is more about being free to do the will of God than it is to do my own. Because we're slaves to sin. To be free, to have a free will means I can say no to the things that are begging me to say yes to them. You see, this cuts at many levels. This idea of whether or not doing anything good or bad, because what this, what this does, and maybe not all of us struggle with this, but what this reveals is salvation is just not about us. <laughs> it's not that we're special, it's just that God is merciful. Now, don't get me wrong, aren't we special in Christ? Yes, that's not what I mean. You know, there's always someone that's like, wait a minute, I thought we were special in Christ. It's like, that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> Listen, you're not the apple of his eye, though. Jesus is. We're not the apple of his eye. Jesus is. And anyone who belongs to Jesus is inherited. We get, that, we get that love uniquely. Salvation is just not about us. We're not like, we're not that gangster. We're just, there's nothing special where God was like, hey, I got to save him. Like that dude is like, look at him. He's killing the game right now. I got, hey, listen, hey, I, I want him on my team. No. Not at all. We are not special in that sense. It's God is just merciful. And this is tough because what this means is God's decision is not based on the foreknowledge of the morality of humanity. Because then it is, then it is based on, well, this is, there's something about us. No, God is not looking into the future saying, oh, they're going to be this or they're going to do this for the kingdom. It's not. It's Christ does everything that God wants and then allows the rest of us to participate 
in the further mission of God. His decision is not based on the foreknowledge of the morality of humanity. This is why he emphasizes, for though her sons, verse, verse 11, Romans 9, for though her sons had not, had not been born yet or done anything good or bad, so there's no moral reason that God is choosing them. He said, had not done anything good and bad. And here's the second most important phrase. So that God's purpose according to election might stand. So what's his purpose? Salvation. And it's according to election. Well, what is that? Listen to the way it's described. It's according to election. It means it's according to God choosing people. It's according to his purpose is salvation according to the way he brings about salvation. I'm choosing people to believe. And he says so that it might stand. Might stand means accepted as truth. So election is a truth that God says might stand, which means I'm choosing people to be saved, not them. And that's going to stand because I am the one who is merciful. It's my decision based on my wisdom and my acts of mercy. Very important that people are saved solely by him. And he reiterates right after that again, the next most important phrase at the beginning of verse 12, not from works. This is the mystery of mercy. It's the mystery of mercy. Listen, I'm an ex-street dude. I was facing 40 plus years in prison. And now I'm sitting here as a pastor. And I have friends that whose lives did not turn out like mine. We did the same stuff. We even did robberies together. Shot at people together. But my life did not turn out the way theirs did. Am I special? I'd like to think so. But the reality is, no. What in the world am I doing sitting here apart from the grace and the humor of the Lord? I don't deserve to be here. I don't deserve for anyone to say he's our pastor. What does that mean? It is, it, is a, it is the wildest thing to me at, to this day. I've been a pastor here for 13 years, July 1st. And every day it's like, Lord, what in the world am I doing here? <laughs> I take my kids. We still go into the city to get our hair cuts and our hair done. And I do that. I can go to a barbershop down the street. But I want, I want to take my kids into the city so they can interact with some of the people that I've known. And some of these people don't have lives like mine. They don't even know the Lord. What in the world am I doing sitting here? I am no better or different than any of those dudes. But God said, I'm choosing him. Not because he thinks I have, I'm funny. I mean, maybe it's possible to make God laugh. I think me being a pastor is funny enough. <laughs> There's a mystery to mercy that we have to accept. But the challenge is sometimes we think, oh, why hasn't he done this for them? Sometimes we have to say, why did he do this for me? 
Do you honestly think you deserve to know the Lord? You think that's air you're breathing? There isn't a person in this room who deserves to read the Bible, to pray, to sing and have confidence, to do any kind of mission work. I was blown away on Wednesday night at the presentation of Carl and Carlo. Just thinking about all those people in China. That they're affecting. And that God chose them to speak to these people. And they'll be the first to tell you, who are we? And yet God chose them. When Carla said, the, I think it was the little girl, walked up to the camera and showed that she still has the Bible. And I thought, man, I'm around people who don't read because they're not readers. When, I, when they talked about going to China and being there and people seeing them, and so it wasn't just a statement like, we'll see each other one day. I thought, man, Lord, how many people? You chose them. And they're members of this church. That's a mystery of mercy. Because I remember when this ministry started, I remember talking to Carl about, should you do this? When Susan was leaving and transitioning, and it was called American Friends. And we first talked about it and said, you know what? Let's start with have, hosting them on July 4th weekend. And look what it's become. People are hearing about Jesus because of them. Are they special to us? But God could have chosen anyone. You are not a believer because you are amazing. You are a believer because grace is. And if you genuinely trust the Lord, it is the grace, the mystery of mercy. And he's, he's beginning to really lay this foundation out. There's a theological shift. We're starting to really pull behind the curtain and realize Man, this is the real of salvation. That is not air you're breathing. It's grace. In verse, in verse 12, he says this, not from works, but from the one who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. Verse 13, as it is written, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. What a sentence. Do you know how theologically deep this sentence is? We're going to scratch the surface right now. The older will serve the younger. We're going to breeze past that. I want to focus on, as it is written, verse 13. I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Whew. 
What a statement. Now remember, not born, just conceived, just conceived. And God says, I've loved Jacob, but I've hated Esau. Let's start with the terminology first. Loved, hated, past tense. Okay, that's past tense language. Loved, hated. And he's like, did you see the movie? I loved it. You can't say I loved it if you haven't already seen it, unless you're just joking around. When you say, Pastor, I've loved it or I hated it, it means I've experienced it and I didn't like it in typical terms. But here it says, I loved Jacob but hated Esau. This past tense language. He loved Jacob but hated Esau. But the language of past tense means it's already happened. So God is making a significant statement about who he is in, revel in, in, in relative to time and knowledge. Is that God can say in the present that I've hated or loved something that hasn't happened yet in our reality. Because God is outside of the space-time continuum that he's created for us. This is a statement of God's divine authority and power. This is God's knowledge of the future, and the older will serve the younger. It's this, there's a theological term called open theism. And open theism is this really heretical doctrine that God doesn't really know the future, but it's kind of living it out with us. Listen, I don't know if I can serve a God who doesn't know the future. Because you make way too many promises, champ. Now, if God didn't make any promises, cool. But you, you make way too many promises about what's going to happen. So if you don't know the future, then that means you lying, and that means you cease to be God. Because the scripture says, let God be true and every man a liar. If God is a liar, then he's like the rest of us. That dumb song, what if God was one of us, just a slob. Like, that's exactly what he would be if he's lying. So God is describing, in a sentence, a significant aspect of his character, who he is. It's not only do I have divine foreknowledge of the future to make these statements, I already know and have already decided that before the experience of Esau and Jacob, that I love one and hate the other. To God, it's like it already happened. They've already been born and have done all these things, and he's made a decision. But God is saying they haven't even come out of the womb yet. And I already know who's going to be who and what's going to be what. And it's not because they've done anything good or bad. It's because God has decided this is according to my promise and the mystery of my mercy. Listen, we love to sing about mercy, but don't ever take for granted that it's mysterious. Don't ever take for granted that mercy is just somehow this thing that God just dishes out. And we're going to cover this later as the passage reveals, but I'm going to make this statement. Listen, if everyone received mercy, 
then that we wouldn't understand what wrath is. Or to use a, a different analogy, if Christmas were every day, it wouldn't be special. The reason why birthdays and certain things are mean something because they're annual. Everyone can experience that. Or it loses what it actually does. If everyone goes to heaven, then what's the purpose of hell or wrath or judgment or anything? What makes mercy amazing and grace amazing is that some people who don't deserve it are going to get it. In contrast to some people who don't deserve it will not receive it. God is laying out this foundation slowly through the letter. At least I'm going through it slowly to make the point that it's not based on knowledge of the actions. It's not based on prevenient grace. It's based on God's purpose according to election which is salvation by God's choice alone. This should be one of the solas. You got grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. It should be by God's choice alone. This is what he's laying out. And in the next couple of weeks, we'll see it lay out even more by examples. But God is describing there is a mystery to my mercy. And those who experience it are blessed, but not everyone is going to experience it. If two babies that come from the same woman are not going to experience it. But that means there's going to be people around us that don't experience it. So we hope, we pray, we do the things that we know to do. But ultimately, salvation belongs to the Lord not to our evangelistic efforts at all. Every person I've ever led to the Lord is solely because God allowed it to happen. 1 Corinthians 3, 7, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Not from works, from mercy to his glory for his glory and our good. Let's pray. Father, part of believing in you requires faith and faith says I believe even if I don't understand or see it and hope says I wait to see it I wait and persevere in it so that it makes so that I understand it. Father, I, I, you, know, you, you decided the terms of salvation. You decided, I have no idea why you decided, why you and the divine council decided that Jesus would be brutally crucified and rise from the dead. You decided that, that he would obey you perfectly because mankind wouldn't. I had no, no right in that decision. So you get to decide who experiences your mercy and who doesn't. And you never once said, if that's okay with us. 
Father, but you treat us tenderly. For there is a mystery to mercy that we don't understand. And maybe in eternity we will, but, but I would ask that you would encourage every single person in this room who's watching on that camera who is a genuine Christian is there because of your mercy. Not because you knew that we would choose you, because we wouldn't have chosen you unless you made it possible for us to do that. So even in that, you're still choosing us. I pray that you would help us celebrate even what we don't understand. And as you will lay out in the next few verses, more of your logic of this reality, help us to grow in our admiration and love for you even more. For while it does, we can wonder, why not this person, Lord? We should never move away from, why me, Lord? For your mercy, for your love is made manifest in the fact that there are men and women in this room who believe in you, who pray, who read, who give, who serve, who live for you. Be glorified by our lives and by our faith. Not flawless faith, but faithful faith. For your glory and our good, in your name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and say it. You want me to say it? Yeah, don't clap for me. Oh, I was, I was about to tell it, but it, <laughs> I was more, my throat was like, man, drink for me. That was more. <laughs> All right, thank you for that message. We do have a few uh, questions here. Uh, the first one is, is one question asked in two ways. Uh, so uh, the two person. Two one? Yeah. Um, twofer? Yeah, twofer. So um, how do we, oh, um, before uh, I ask, uh, uh, communicate the question, thank everybody for their patience. We do have an AC, HVAC situation going on. So if you notice it was hot, it's hot in here. Thank you. So, I was uh, like, man, what is going yeah. on? Yeah, we All right, have, good, but the Lord yeah. gave me, ref there was a couple breezes I got. <laughs> Angel the Lord breathed on me once or twice. All know, right. Some churches, they'd be like, fired, they'd be fired up. They hear that. That's right. We're taking the wave back to no AC. <laughs> but, um. They ask, how do we situate the supernatural act of acts of God and walking by faith with the realities of our everyday life? Then they ask the same question a different way. Uh, what steps can we take to properly and timely align with the will of God to experience his supernatural acts and the fruits of walking by faith during our Kairos moments? So I guess that means in our, you know, our yeah. everyday life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, you know, so when you think about, like, the Bible, like, what does the Bible actually ask us to do, right? There's a lot of things. We get caught up in a lot of the, like, you know, put to death this, put on that. But fundamentally speaking, right, what is, what is God, from the Old Testament to the New, what God asks us to do is acknowledge him, right? Like, we acknowledge the reality of who God is. And sometimes, as believers, 
we don't acknowledge like the supernatural grace that we're experiencing is is really about acknowledgement. It's training myself to remind myself that man, the fact that I wake up this morning, like like you know how you think of man, like let's let's give praise to the Lord. And people think about man, how can I thank the Lord? There's never ever a moment where we can't thank the Lord. If you have to think about how to thank the Lord, are you missing the point? Because the fact that you can cognitively think about how to remember what that is, is from the Lord. And so we, we're so used to viewing things externally and thinking about like certain things that we want that we wonder if God's going to do. We forget that the fact that I even believe in him is supernatural. You, if you read Ephesians chapter 2, that you were dead in transgressions and sins, right? Dead people don't pray. They don't have a desire to glorify God. They don't have any of that. And God makes it clear that you were dead in transgressions and sins. But he's made you alive in Jesus. Like sometimes we just need to back up and just say, you know what? Let me remind myself of the very basic foundational things and give God credit for those. Let me just thank God for the fact that I do believe. Let me just thank God for the fact that I have a desire to read. Let me thank God for the fact that I have a desire to glorify him. Let me thank God for the fact that I'm, I'm a member of a church and have a desire to be a part of a church. Let me thank God for the fact. These things, listen, there are Christians in China who call and call or talk to that do not have the privileges that we have and if they do, they come at a cost much greater than us, much greater than the cost to us. I can go sit somewhere, bring my Bible, get something to eat, and just chill. We can even have a couple guys show up, and we just, as long as we're not too loud, we can have our own Bible study in a, in a facility. Man, there's some, there's some countries in the world that if they even catch you with a Bible, it's curtains. So, so we're so used to evaluating our faith and our relationship with God based on our desires and not the things that we've already received. I was talking to a brother earlier in the week. Sometimes we got to remember, like, listen, when God said to the Jews, like, thus says the Lord, I, the Lord, your God, who brought your forefathers out of Egypt, right? God always reminded them what he's done already to give them confidence for what he can do right now. A lot of us need to just stop and not think about what do we want that we don't have, but thank God for what he's already given, what he's already done. That's how we cultivate a heart for the superficial. We're more worried about what we don't have that we want or what season of life we hope changes or this circumstance or this person, and we're not thinking, you know what? Anyone who's a genuine Christian in this room and watching who's been a Christian longer than a couple days, and I'm only saying that because sometimes when you first, I think God doesn't, when you first become a Christian, it's like, man, the whole world is like, yeah, I just love everyone. It's grace everywhere. I want to tell everyone about Jesus. A year later, it's just it's, it's a little rough. It looks like you lost a little bit of that, 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 that effervescence. You know what it is? It's you've gone through some things. You've been challenged a little bit. God is testing your faith. He's allowing your faith to be tested. He's, he's letting James 1, 2 through 4, trials of various kinds, shape you. Everyone who's a genuine Christian in this room longer than a couple of days has walked through 
one or more trials as a believer and you still believe in Jesus. That's his mercy. Because we all know people who have walked away from the Lord for far less. I know people who have walked away from the Lord because he didn't provide them a husband. I know people that have walked away from the Lord for far less. And if you're still a believer, still grace. So we need to thank God for the things that he's already done and the little things that we think are just normally just what we do. Listen, in and of ourselves, you're not going to just get up and read the Bible. You're not going to get up and go serve the homeless. You're not going to get up and go give away food to somebody else. You're going to try to figure out how many of these turkeys can I take. You know, in and of itself, we don't think like that unless the grace of God is there. Yeah, there's common grace and sure. People serve in certain ways that are not Christian. I get that. But our desire to glorify the Lord comes from the spirit of the Lord. We need to thank God for that. That's how we cultivate it. When we, do, when we can't thank God for the things that he's already done, or the little things that we do, then we're missing the point. Thanking God for this right now. And then Josh asked me before the sermon started. So in light of uh, what you've shared with us this this morning, uh, can you elaborate and explain uh, how Romans 8.29 fits with that, where it says for uh, those he, he foreknew, he also predestined to conform them into the image of his son. It says he foreknew them. Mm-hmm. So it's just a foreknowledge. It's, it's not a foreknowledge of what people would do. It's a foreknowledge of just God knowing who he's going to choose who the people are that he's predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So it's just saying God knew from the beginning of time who the people are that he was going to save, that he was going to conform to the image of his son. So it's not a foreknowledge based on the people's activity. It's just a foreknowledge based on God knowing these are the people that I'm going to train to be conformed to the image of my son. And so the cross that we carry, right, Jesus, Mark 8, take up your cross and follow me. And what, is, what, is the cro- what, is the cross, what, what does take up your cross fundamentally mean? Just deny yourself. He said, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. So we live lives of self-denial to varying degrees. That's what being a Christian is really about. It's just self-denial to varying degrees. We live lives of self-denial. So if it's, so like, so it could be sin, I'm resisting giving in the temptation, I'm denying myself the pleasure of sin. It might just be I want acknowledgement for what I do, and I'm just not, I'm just going to keep, because there are people who serve in this church that don't say, you wouldn't even know it. If we didn't do worthy of honor, you wouldn't even know that these people do it, because they don't walk around and tell everybody what they do. It's just, it's a way, it's just self-denial on many levels is what it means to take up your cross. It's denying myself the satisfaction of anger when things don't go my way. It's denying myself the pride that refuses to ask for forgiveness to someone because they've sinned against me also and they ain't asked for forgiveness. You know, there's, there's many levels, but it, it really is that. So it's just God knew who he was going to save to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And Jesus, I mean, you think about who he is. He's God, comes down to earth. That is the ultimate self-denial. But he comes to earth to die 
I mean, the God who knows everything, who created everything, allows himself to be tired. He's sitting with the woman at the well in John 4, and it says he's tired. They give you the impression that Jesus is kind of exhausted sitting there talking to this woman. The God who created exhaustion is allowing himself to experience it. The God who created the nerve endings of pain is allowing the nails to go in and, and, and work effectively. The God who created, who understands, who, who, who allows people to experience betrayal, allowed himself to be betrayed. That's self-denial. So he says, look, that's what it means to be conformed to the image of his son. We're learning to deny ourselves. We're learning to, we give God the credit for the good things, and we put, the, we put the blame on us for the bad thing, so to speak. That's how 829 works, with what I just told you. Okay. Um, as you, as I know you already have done, we're about to um, bring some heated questions, if you know what I mean. Sure. So this one says, what evidence is there that, Roman, that in Romans 9, 11, Election is used in reference to salvation. Uh, doesn't that, that sort, this sort of predestination set God as capricious and choosing his elect arbitrarily? How can this belong to God alone? What about our personal response to that grace? This would imply that God predestines individuals to hell. Please clarify. So what evidence is it? Mm-hmm. Is the rest of chapter 9? The rest of chapter 9 is the evidence to that question. As we go through the rest of the chapter, he, Paul addresses almost that indiscriminately. So I'm not going to say anything else. We'll just go, uh, whoever asked the question, it's a great question. And it's, a, it's an age-old question. It is, this, listen, we're, 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 what, we're what one theologian, Charles Spurgeon, called the deep end of the theological pool. This is not Christianity 101. This is Christianity 401. This is deep stuff. And so, but Paul, Paul addresses that, those things in the rest of the chapter. We're just breaking it down. So I can't, I'm only, I'm only, Paul didn't write this saying, okay, in verses 9 through 13, and then we'll do that. No, he wrote a whole chapter extending all the way to chapter 11. Talks about election and, and then Israel. So he will answer that very specifically in the rest of Romans 9. But I would, whoever asked the question, just continue to read the rest of Romans 9 and see that some of that very question, phrased a little differently, Paul addresses that. All right. Um, we've had this question come in uh, in a couple ways, but I'll ask it this way. Uh, in a couple ways, meaning from different people. Uh, but uh, the way this one is worded, I think is best straightforward. Since the Bible points that he, God, chooses the elect, what would be the point of making disciples of the nations if he chooses in the beginning? So he predestined who goes to hell without giving them a chance to repent? Question mark. So that, that's the question? That's the question. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll, we'll answer it in chapter 9. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, the, I'm just going to, we're just going to, I'm going to let, the reason I'm purposely, y'all know I, I, I'm, I always answer the questions, but this on this one, we're gonna let, I'm gonna let God answer that because I think He speaks to that. 
read the rest of Romans 9, and then as we go through it, we'll be done with Romans 9 in a couple weeks. Actually, probably, I think there's only two more messages I think I'm doing the way I broke down Romans 9. There may be two, maybe three at the most. I'm going to let God answer that because I think with questions like that, those are questions that deal with people's genuine struggles with God. And sometimes it's not best for me to try to speak for God because then it becomes my perspective versus at the end of the day, this is a question that has been asked even in the scriptures and God answers that question. Now, let me say, I'm not going to say you're going to like his answer, mm-hmm. but God does answer that, those questions in Romans 9. So I'm not going to answer that. I'm going to wait till we get there and then clarify what God already said. But these are great questions. Don't get me wrong. These are, these are great questions, and they get at the heart of, you know what these are? They get at the heart of how, why it's difficult sometimes to trust the Lord. At the end of the day, like, they're, they're, listen, faith in the Lord is not effortless or f- flawless or somehow, like, easy. There are things that, like, like, you've heard me mention John the Baptist plenty because even he was like, man, ask the Lord, is he the Messiah or not? Like, it's just even he, the one who baptized him, who heard, who watched the dove descend on him, in the, the Holy Spirit descend on him in the form of a dove, who heard the Father say, this is my son, whom I am well pleased. He did all of that. Even he was like, man, ask Jesus, is he the Messiah or not? Just from being locked up. So listen, these are deep questions. That Now, if it's someone in this room and you want to come up to me and we can talk about it, but in terms of doing it like this, we're going to wait until we get further in the, in the chapter. God definitely speaks to this, anticipating these questions. And they're good questions. I've had them myself. I'm not teaching this like, eh. No, nah, I've had to wrestle myself. I'm, I'm preaching from having resolved my issues with this particular idea of God's choosing. Uh, so this question in light of the message is, um, can, you, can you explain, um, someone's wondering how someone could walk away from the Lord if the Lord chose them. Um, they say that the language is a little bit confusing mm-hmm. to them. Um, it sounds like it's all God, but there's also language in scripture that makes them believe uh, leaving or staying is a choice a person makes, a decision. Good question. That will also be resolved in Romans 9. But I, but I, but I, but I will say this. No, it, it's a good question. because So what the question does is it highlights the main tension of this particular doctrine. Mm-hmm. is free will and predestination. So why does, and, and I'm, I'm going to, ah. so, so God references in this chapter, he referenced in this chapter, hardening Pharaoh's heart, but Pharaoh also being still responsible to God for having his heart, his heart hardened. Now we're going to get to that, but that's the, that's what, that's, that's kind of what this question is getting at. So I'm going to save that part of it for coming up. I'm going to answer the other part about how do we know people walk away from the faith. This is something that we have to understand. We can only, so remember when, when God chose, um, when God told Samuel to go look for a new king after Saul. He wanted David's, uh, Jesse's sons. So Samuel goes out and he tells Jesse to call his sons. And his sons all come out and 
And, and he's thinking, Samuel's thinking, oh, it's him, and okay, it must be him. And then God says, no, 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 no. Man looks on the outside, God, he judges, but God judges the inside, right? So I want to take that statement and make it a principle for when we think about Christianity and people walking away from the faith. We only have the ability to judge what we see on the outside. That's as best as we can go. We only have the ability to see what we see. We don't know what people do when we're not around them. We don't know their hearts. We don't know anything else but what they confess and what they show us. In the New Testament, it's called, you judge a tree by the fruit that it bears. We can only judge that. And, and so the Bible in 1 John 2 says this. Um, let me Actually, I don't feel like you don't have to read it. If, I'm going to paraphrase it, but if anyone walks away from the faith, then they were never with us in the first place. So in other words, I may think this person is solid, and they walk away from the faith. The Bible says then they were never really believers in the first place. What I saw was a process potentially, a consideration, or... I may see them walk away, and then they come back. We, you know, until people die, we don't know who's coming back, right? So when we're thinking of people that have walked away, don't forget about the prodigal son, that story. Don't forget about God saving, like, the, the thief on the cross at the last minute. Like, people don't always end up in the condition that they are. People come back home. So that's one side of it. But if people do not, then the Bible's perspective is, they weren't believers in the first place. Now, they fooled us, and they may have even fooled themselves, but this is where the doctrine of perseverance, right, comes into play. The doctrine of perseverance. And this is why the stories in Hebrews 11 are so powerful, because most of those stories, they call that the hall of faith, right? Most of those stories of people in the Old Testament, they're not of people of, like, Gleaming character. I mean, there are some that I thought, man, why is this dude an example? Why is Rahab in there? She was lying and all that. I mean, like, you know, listen, we measure faith differently than God does. You look at the examples of people in Hebrews 11, they don't look like examples. If some of them were in our church, we'd be like, man, I don't know. But it's a different situation. So, when we're evaluating people, we evaluate what we see. That's all we can do. God knows who really belongs to him. And as I said, maybe last week or the week before, that in 1 Timothy, Paul says, some men's sins go before them to the judgment, and some people's are revealed in due time. Some people, and I hate to keep using his name, but I'm using it only because it's just we all know this. Who thought Robbie Zacharias was doing that? But then all of a sudden, after he's gone, all of this gets revealed. And it's like, wow. Now, I ain't saying where he went eternally. That's not my job. But what I'm saying is the fruit that came out makes me question genuineness. When you can do all of that and be doing this? Mm. So, again, we have, to, we have to remember that we just don't always know what God knows. And so when people walk away from the faith, if they walk away for good, biblically speaking, they didn't really believe in the first place. 
Is that easy to handle? No. You're going to have good questions. I may not be able to answer them. That's not the point, though. The point isn't me being able to answer these questions or God even resolving these in the Bible. Part of the faith that we have to have in God is connected to believing things like this and believing that God somehow has predestined people, but people are also responsible for their actions. It's hard to resolve in the same way that Jesus is fully God and fully man. It's just hard to resolve. It's hard to resolve that the spirit of the Holy Spirit is in us, but we often don't feel him or recognize nothing. It, these are they're just things about God that are more complicated than believe, and election is just one of those things. And speaking of the difficulties to believe and persevering, we have a number of questions um, that are in this vein uh, regarding uh, suffering and God's glory um, related to, you know, his predestination and that being a path for people. So I'll read one of the questions, um, but there are at least three uh, in this vein. And I guess I'll use this one. Um, yeah, I'll use this one because it's more pastoral. How would you encourage someone who has been a Christian for over two decades and from their perspective, they've only handled, they've only experienced hardship and not much joy in life? What, what scriptures would you give to encourage them to persevere to the end and have faith um, that their experience is part of God's glory? give you one. We just read this in the deductive Bible study group. I'm going to turn there. I want to read part of it. This is one of the ones where I would prefer to read. In Luke chapter 16, there's a story called The Rich Man and Lazarus. I want to read this. Luke 16, verses 19 to 31. He says this. There was a rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was lying at his gate. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. So look at the... He just wanted some crumbs from the table, and what he got was dogs licking his sword. One day the poor man died and was carried away by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. Son, Abraham said, remember that during your life you received your good things, just as Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here while you are in agony. Now, I'm not going to read the rest of it. Now, let me just tell you one thing about this. This story right here is not defined as a parable. So it's not a figure of speech that Jesus is talking about. This is a story that in this life, some people will experience greater suffering, 
But he said that as soon as this man died, he was taken to be in the bosom of Abraham. And the role switched. This story principally is communicating. Now, it's about this guy, but there are times in our, for people, there are certain people that are going to experience more suffering prolonged than other people. But God promises that those people, those of you who continue to persevere in the Lord, have a reward coming that is significant. I'd also go to Romans 8.18, which we talked about. Our present suffering is not worth being compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. I'd go to Revelation chapter 21, mm-hmm. 1 through 7, mm-hmm. particularly verse 7. I'd go there to remind us. I'd even go to Luke 13. Luke 13. Mm-hmm. This might actually be the most mm-hmm. practical for this person. Mm-hmm. Luke 13. And it's, it says this, beginning of Luke 13, it's just five verses. He says, at the time, some people came and reported to him about the Galileans whose blood had been mixed with sacrifices. And he responded to them saying, do you think that these Galileans are more sinful than all the other Galileans because they suffered these things? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Or those 18 that the Tower of Siloam fell on and killed, do you think they were more sinful than all the other people who live in Jerusalem? Let me take that and make it a principle flipped. Do you think because you suffer more that somehow God loves you less? No, no. And I'm not saying you think that. But like the, the circumstances of our lives aren't necessarily the measure of God's blessing, favor, love or not. They're just the circumstances that test us. And everyone has different ones to persevere to the end. These people who had Pilate took their blood and mixed it in with sacrifices or a tower fell on people and people tend to think, man, look how sinful they are. Mm -hmm. And he says that that has nothing to do with that. That's not even important. Sometimes our suffering, we can look at and be like, man, what is happening? Why is this? And what it does, and it's not easy, but what it is, is God for those people where you're, you're, you're having to press in, your cross is different. Your cross is different, but God promises that if you hold that cross and you carry that cross, like Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, I finished the race. Paul meant, look, I still believe at the end of my life. He said, there's a crown of life waiting for me and to all who loved his appearing. That's just, it's hard. It's hard but it's not impossible, but it is hard. And if you're a member of our church, you'll need help and let us help carry that load. Another question um, along pastoral lines is um, a person asks two questions in one, but they're closely related. How do we not continually feel immensely guilty that we have the privilege of being elected by God and others don't have the promise of salvation. Also leading from that, how do we not second guess that we do have the privilege of being elect? In Revelation 6, verses 9 through 13, It's called the fifth seal. 
and God opens, that seal opens, and you see countless people that we know they're martyrs. These are people that were killed because they believe in Jesus exclusively. Not like just, no, they actually believe in Jesus. They died because you're a Christian, not died as a Christian, but because you're a Christian. Now, these people are in eternity. They're in the presence of the holy God. They are in a sinless state. They see Jesus, whom they died for. They are around all of the believers around them. And, and they ask, when are we going to receive justice for what happened to us? So even in heaven, in the presence of God, there was an understanding that justice that things are not right yet. And God says to them, he doesn't correct them, but he says, wait a little while, other people need to be killed like you, and then I'll do what needs to be done. So until then, take these robes. Why am I saying that? It's because God's holiness and God's wrath is going to happen. And we're going, people are going to experience that. And even in heaven, even in heaven, where people are in a sinless condition, are away from all of it, they still desire God. They understand the holiness of God in such a way that they still want God's glory to be revealed in his judgment. You see, love doesn't oppose judgment. As believers, part of our responsibility is to recognize that part of God's holiness will be his judgment towards people. Now, obviously, that could affect people that we care about. And that's going to be suffering that we have to deal with in this life. We've, some of us have lost people that we know, I don't think they made it. Unless on their dying breath, I don't think they made it, and that's hard. That hurts, and I'm not going to pretend like God's sovereignty comforts them. It is a wound that we will carry. Mm -hmm. However, there's going to come a point in time when that reality you will embrace as a part of being connected to God and a part of God's holy character. Because in Revelation, they see that. You would think, hey, I'm not even worried about what happened to me down there. Mm -hmm. And that whole seal that God wanted us to see was tons of people in the presence in heaven, in paradise. Mm -hmm. They still want God to do something about what happened to them. We, we will also, at some point, accept the judgment and justice of God because that's a part of what he has to do. Mm -hmm. But in this life, it may be a part of the cross that we have to carry. Mm -hmm. On the other side, it goes back to what I said earlier about, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not trying to correct anyone, the person who asked this question, but I want to make a statement. This isn't to correct you, but I just want to say this. 
I don't think you understand the reality of God's holiness and your sinfulness and the spirit of God working in you. Like, you don't desire to glorify God unless the spirit of God is in you. It's not you. You don't. So when you're thinking, how can I question? The fact that you're asking that question is evidence that the spirit of God is at work in you. Your desire to read, pray, and to fight sin is not something that everyone does, and you're not sure if you're genuine. Biblically speaking, you don't do that unless you want to honor the Lord. You don't. You are, when people are dead, in Romans 8, it says the carnal mind, the mind of the flesh cannot please God. You just can't. You just don't. And some people grew up in the church, so they don't know the difference. I remember the clear difference in my life from not caring about what the Lord thought to like being grateful for things, for even suffering that the Lord brought me through. Mm -hmm. There is something about the spirit of God that makes us have a desire and even suffer and look back on that suffering with gratitude mm -hmm. that only comes from the spirit. Mm -hmm. So part of your challenge is to believe what, what we used to call the evidences of grace in your life. And your desire to do things to honor the Lord is proof of that. And so, I, you know, I'd have to be more specific to get specific about how to, but a lot of this is, you know, you're just struggling to believe that, or you may be thinking that, that the stuff that you're doing is somehow of your own doing. And that's where we talked about the supernatural casualism. Mm -hmm. Like, listen, I'm just, I'm telling you, there are people, Carl could attest to this, there are people who are professors in religion, theology, who study, who know the Bible, that know it better than us. They don't believe at all. There are archaeologists who have found things that prove, found remnants of particular cities or stories, and they can tell you, we think the tomb is here. We think Noah's Ark happened here. We think this happened here. You can watch documentaries on the History Channel of these people demonstrating things that you're getting encouraged about, you're edified about, and these people don't believe the Bible at all. They don't agree with Jesus at all. So why do you have faith? Why are you concerned about your maturity and these people who know the Bible better than you or not? Because the Spirit is at work in you. And that's what we have to remember. When there's no desire, when there's no activity, when it, then I think we should genuinely question. I need to work out my salvation with fear and trembling, 2 Peter 1.10 says. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you're in trembling, mm -hmm. but you just don't believe your salvation is working. Mm -hmm. And you might misunderstand your effort as being somehow coming from you, and that's just because God is so casual that it seems like I'm doing this on my own, when in reality, the Spirit is prompting you and giving you a desire to read, especially when you don't feel like it. So anyway. Thank you. Uh, this question <clears throat> is asked because um, the categories of Calvinism and Arminianism seem to uh, really 
uh, be really, really, a really, really deep cutting issue and definitely one that Christians throughout history have interpreted uh, differently, use scripture to, to come to their conclusions differently, right? So the person asks, how important is it that we agree with one another when it comes to the topic of Calvinism versus Arminianism? Let me make sure I understand. So how important is it that we agree with one of them? Like if we, or, or the two agree? How important is it that as Christians we agree on Calvinism versus Arminianism? Oh, okay, right. Okay, so Calvinism and Arminianism are not the gospel. Right. So what you're, what you're held accountable for is believing in Jesus Christ. You're not held accountable for believing the doctrines of grace. Now, don't get me wrong. We do want to have sound doctrine, right? So you want to believe what the Bible teaches. But, like, let me ask you this. The thief on the cross, what theology did he have? He didn't do much, and Jesus said, today you will be able to. You know what he did? He acknowledged that Jesus is who he says he is. See, one of the things that we've done is we've allowed our theology to determine what, what salvation. Listen, Jesus is the most theological man that ever lived. And you know what he did? He told a bunch of stories. Jesus wasn't, I mean, Jesus was only complicated because you didn't know what the parable meant. But Jesus told stories. A man went and built this, and then this happened, and then this happened. Thus is the kingdom of heaven. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus didn't get into all the stuff that Paul even got into. Jesus was very simple. He told stories. We're, what we're supposed to believe is that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the son of God that he died on the cross for our sins and he rose, for the, for, rose from the grave and that we now belong to Jesus and we live in obedience to that. There are going to be people with a lot of bad doctrine that make it to heaven. Exactly. In fact, mm -hmm. in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says this. He says that each man's work will be measured by the fire. And... And whoever's foundation was built on hay, wood, and straw will be burned up. He said, though he himself may be saved, his works will be burned up. You know what he's saying? That there are going to be people whose doctrine wasn't built on solid footing, but they still trusted and genuinely believed in Jesus. So a lot of what they did doesn't earn them eternal rewards, but they get to be in heaven. What we have to believe is not Calvinism or Arminianism. We need to believe truth, right. but there are many Arminians that are going to heaven Amen. and many Calvinists that are going to heaven. Right. I just think we need to believe in Jesus first. And that's ultimately why we get in. Not because of what we knew. Because if we're honest, most of the people that Jesus had a problem with in his day were the theologians. Mm -hmm. They were the people that knew theology. You don't hear Jesus going after the poor people. He's going after all the theologians. The people who know sound doctrine. Mm. So again, I think that's, that's, the gospel is not Calvinism, and it's not Arminianism, it's Jesus. Mm. And that's what we have to believe. Jesus didn't say nothing about you got to believe that you were chosen before the foundation of the world to be saved. Mm. He didn't say nothing about that. Now, does that matter? I think, yeah, I think it can shape the way we think about our lives and how we live, but ultimately, it's not the gospel. Mm. When I was in, let me say this last thing, when I was in India, I've been in India twice. And both times I went to India, it was mostly what we would call Pentecostal charismatic activity. 
These people didn't know who John Calvin was. They didn't know who Jacob Arminius was. They don't know about none of these theologians. They don't know about no John MacArthur, John Piper. They know Apostle John. They don't know none of these folks. And I tell you what, for those weeks that I was there, I experienced the most authentic Christianity that I've ever experienced. And it, I came back after all the supernatural stuff I saw and was like, look, I don't care if you don't agree with the gifts of the spirit and charismatic. You say that because you over here. Go to Southeast India and hang there for a couple of weeks and then tell me the gifts of the spirit and all that stuff doesn't work. Right. So I still believe in the theological framework that I have, but God is not reduced to the theological framework that I understand. And he proved that when I was over there. We weren't worried about none of that stuff, but like, golly, this is happening right now in real time. It was crazy. So I think Christians are going to be with Jesus. And some of them will be Calvinists, some of them will be Arminians, some of them will be none of them. You got, you got time for these two more? Or, Man, this is The Rock. I will be here all day for the next three minutes. Okay, all right. We're spending the night. All right, but uh, this next question is, um, they, they describe what they heard because it plays into that question. So um, I've heard people bring this idea that God is outside of time. Therefore, we can't really understand the relationship between our, our willing and God's choosing. But if God's electing or choosing of some isn't based on foreknowledge of our future, willing or working, but rather based on his own decision, as this passage that we went through today suggests, shouldn't that fact that God is outside of time not even matter when it comes to this? If I'm understanding the question correctly, I think the statement that God is outside of time is just used to indicate that God, we, to make the clarification between how we understand the Bible and God and how God works. So, like, to give an example, God will say stuff like this. Um, do not worship their gods and do not worship their mm. God. They're like, you know, Jeremiah 10, their gods have no authority. They can't hurt you. Don't worship their God. In reality, though, in reality, there are no other gods, though, in reality, right? I mean, yes, there is a sense where there's a divine council and there's, there's people that, that, that are a part of a team of people that make decisions, that God makes decisions with in the scriptures. And, but there are no other gods, technically speaking. So when God says, don't worship these other gods, they can't. He's basically just saying these people are demons, but he's speaking to us in the way that we understand them to be. When I was in India and we were, we were surrounded and I knew we were going to die, I was like, they're going to kill us because we interrupted this, this festival and there were hundreds of people and they were all yelling at us. And I don't know if you know what it's like to be yelled at in a foreign language, but you don't think like, oh, thank you. You like my shirt? Like, nah, you just... Someone could say, hello, how you doing, in a foreign language, and it sounds like you're going to die. You just don't, because you don't know what they're saying. They're surrounding us. I mean, this is straight out of the National Geographic. People got paint, bones all over their body, all these piercings, and they're yelling at us. And behind them is this 
sitting down, 15-foot huge statue of this monkey god that they worshipped. And to them, it was a god. Now, in that moment, I was thinking, wow, we're going to die. I mean, no, I mean, it, it was real. We, everyone was crying, everyone. Every, there were nine of us. Everyone was crying. We thought, this is it. I mean, this is it. This is what, this is it. This is, I mean, it looked like first century acts. I was like, this is it. We're going to die. And all I could do was say, remember what God we said. Remember what God we said. And it's in front of this huge statue, which is their God. That's not a God, though. That's a statue. But to them, it was the, it was the motive for why they were getting ready to kill us. So I just said, remember what God we serve. Remember what God we serve. Remember what God we serve. And then I turned around and was like, wow. I thought I saw someone like pick up rocks. And I was like, man. And I remember thinking, I was engaged at the time. And I remember thinking like, dad, it wasn't the Lord's will that I married Betsy. Because I was like, dad, I thought I heard from you, Lord. This is, I, this is honestly what I was thinking. I was like, dad, it wasn't his will that I married Betsy. I was like, wow. And then I just thought, well, they're going to remember that they killed me. And so I walked up front and said, we're not afraid, Lord. We're not afraid to die. We love you, Lord. And so I said, sing louder. We were like, Lord, I lift your name on high. And eventually, people in that village got saved. But that statue in front of us was a God to them. To us, we could be afraid of it as a God. And God will speak to us saying, don't fear their gods. But God knows that's not a real God. So sometimes God speaks to us in the space-time continuum that we understand. But then God speaks to us outside of time. Like when he uses past tense words like, you have been glorified. You have been, he uses terminology that's not our experience. Well, how can he do that? Because he knows outside of the space-time continuum. So when people use that language, at least when I do, I'm only trying to help you make a distinction between your experience of God and the reality that God knows. So I don't think the terminology itself is, has anything to do necessarily with foreknowledge or that we shouldn't consider the space-time continuum, so to speak, if that makes sense. If it doesn't, I had a good trip down memory lane. And that person is here, and they can get, get to you if they cool. need to follow up. Um, this last question jumps back to uh, pastoral. Um, how can we be confident in our salvation then in light of what you said? And they go on to say this. If salvation depends on God's faithfulness and not on our own, why are we encouraged to sin no more? Sometimes I fear that my salvation is determined by the degree to which I have changed. By the degree to which what? They have changed. They have changed from sinning? Yes. So the, let me make sure. so the question is, if God chooses, why, like, live saved? Like, why? Is that kind of what he's getting at? If so, I think they're, they're trying to uh, determine, so the, the key, let's see, if salvation is So I, I think this, this question it, within the uh, body of it uh, can help. If salvation depends on God's faithfulness and not on our own, why are we encouraged to sin no more? Oh, okay. Right, 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 right. The simple answer is because God commanded it. That's just a simple answer. Like, God, because God commanded it. Like, he still, like, 
So listen, God, the Bible in no way, shape, or form says that we're robots. In no way, shape, or form does it say that because God chose us to experience grace, that we somehow, everything we do is we're a product of God and we can't move unless he, just because there's, and again, it's, it's, hard to, it's, it's hard to wrap our minds around it. But in the Bible, it's clear man is responsible for his actions just because God knows all the actions that man is going to do. That is just a fundamental reality. And there isn't a, a mystery in any religion that doesn't make you be like, all right, well, I got to trust it. So there's a sense where the Bible doesn't say salvation is from the Lord and Mankind just chills like we part of what we do in faith is we live according to the salvation that we believe we have. The Bible never says like, hey, because I chose you, I'm going to choose everything else you do. It doesn't say that. What it says is. I've given you grace. Now live in light of it and I'll reward you later. That's the real biblical picture is God saying, I, I'm going to give you this grace that you don't deserve, and I'm going to reward you later for trusting in me. And we'll, I mean, he'll flush, well, this will get flushed out more as we go. This is, we're at the cusp of the doctrine of election in Romans 9. He just mentioned it here, and it's going to get deeper as we go forward. But the reality is, is it is an age-old theological question. I am not going to be able to sufficiently answer it. You're either going to get more tempted or agree with what I'm saying, and that ultimately is between you and the Lord. I can't resolve all those tensions because God did not say, I intend to resolve those tensions for you. What he said was, in faith, you believe in my son and what I promised. You persevere to the end, and I am going to reward you for doing so. And then that time is when those tensions may be resolved. But I'm not, there's no, I mean, these are, these are fantastic questions that only bring resolution based on one's faith. There's nothing that I'm like, you're going to leave here maybe even more tempted. You got to take that with the Lord. Read the rest of Romans 9 and take that up with the Lord. I can only communicate the infinite, I mean, the, the finite knowledge that I have based on what I've read, studied, and understand to be true. And these are great questions. I used to have them. I've just resolved those questions, not because God has given me sufficient answers, but because God is sufficient for me. I mean, this is, me, this is just me personally. And this is not just the last thing I'm saying. It doesn't have to be you. For me personally, the fact that Jesus died on the cross brutally so that I could be forgiven, I just don't have a lot more questions, to be honest, because God didn't have to do that. And then I know for me personally, because of who I used to be, I don't even deserve to be sitting here. So I don't have a lot of questions about, because I don't deserve none of this. I don't deserve my wife. Listen, I was facing 43 years in 1998. If they would have just given me 20 years in prison, I would have gotten out in 2018. I'd have been in my 40s, pretty much spent half of my life in prison. I would have been institutionalized, having to live with my mom and try to find a way to make it in society. I wouldn't know a single person in this room. I wouldn't know my wife, my children. I wouldn't have them, and I may not know the Lord. 
I don't got a lot of questions for the Lord. That's just me because I know what I deserve. But theologically speaking, I've just resolved the tension that Jesus's sacrifice and his suffering, it trumps a lot of the concerns that I've had over the years and questions. That doesn't mean I like everything or everything makes sense, but it means I'm okay with what God has communicated, knowing that what I don't understand, he may explain in eternity. And, but what I don't understand, I'm not going to allow it to hinder me from acting on what I do understand. I'm not doing that. So, so uh, that was the last question. But since we've had so many pastoral uh, questions and uh, just a lot of questions, can I just close us out with prayer? Man, please. All right. Please join me. Pray, pray for the HVAC, too. Yeah. <laughs> Lord, um, I just ask you that you would please um, show us more of you. Mm. When one, one account that we have some behind the scenes intel on is the story of Job. And he had many questions. There was confusion all around. There were things he didn't understand. And when you address his questions, you don't address them in the way that I would expect mm. you to address those. But instead, you ask him questions. And by asking him the questions that you ask him, you show him more of you. He gets a clear understanding not only of who you are, but also of who he is in relation to you, even as Pastor Curtis just laid out his own understanding of himself as compared with you Lord so we just ask you that you would please bless bless us in our questioning Lord bless us that you will be enough may we not stop questioning but may we question in light of who you are and in light of who we are and Lord would you please preserve our faith Regardless of what we go through, would you sustain us? Mm. Would you help us to persevere to the end? Will we be like Paul, where we can say that we've finished our course, mm -hmm. we've kept the faith, we fought. There's reason to fight the good fight of faith. So, Lord, be with us, encourage us, and, Lord, as we go deeper into Romans 9, please reveal your glory to us more. In Jesus' name we pray and we thank you. Bless our HVAC system when the technician comes, we pray. Since that was a request. Glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Love you. Thanks for coming, and we'll see you when we see you.